Before we get to today's headlines, we're excited to invite you all to dig into bonus content, engage with the Murder Minute community, and talk to show creators on Himalaya Plus. Download the Himalaya app to get these perks and early access to episodes. The first 500 subscribers will be entered to win a $500 gift card. Welcome to Murder Minute. Today, the story of the weepy-voiced killer. But first, your true crime headlines. A key witness in the murder trial of Amber Geiger was shot and killed in Dallas this week. Joshua Brown lived across the hall from Botham, Jean, and testified at the murder trial of their neighbor, Amber Geiger, who was convicted last week of murdering Jean after mistaking his apartment for her own. Brown lived across the hall from Jean and wiped away tears as he testified in the trial, telling jurors that he had met Jean for the first time on the day he was murdered and describing hearing noise in the hallway just before Geiger shot him. Brown was found shot and killed in the parking lot of a Dallas apartment complex. When police arrived, they observed a silver sedan speeding out of the parking lot. Authorities have not yet identified a suspect or motive in the killing. A trial is underway for a California man accused of sending hundreds of threatening messages to families of victims of the shooting of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. The accused, 21-year-old Brandon Fleury, sent more than 300 threatening messages to family members and friends of the shooting victims. The messages were sent over the course of several weeks in late 2018 and early 2019, from Instagram handles with usernames like nicholas.kill.your.sister and Nicholas the Murderer. Flory told investigators that he created several different handles in anticipation of Instagram shutting them down. Flory's attorneys have argued that their client is autistic and was thus incapable of judging the impacts that the messages would have on his victims. Flory stands charged with three counts of cyber-stalking and one count of transmitting a kidnap threat. Each count carries a maximum sentence of five years in prison. Two Chicago gang members were each found guilty of first-degree murder for the execution-style killing of a nine-year-old boy in 2015. Dwight Boone Doty and Corey Morgan were each found guilty by separate juries who observed one trial during which prosecutors told the broad daylight execution-style shooting of Tyshawn Lee, a Chicago fourth grader and the son of a rival gang member, whose murder was described by prosecutors as an act of revenge. Lee was approached by Boone Doty at a park near his home and lured into a nearby alley where Boone Doty shot the child multiple times in the head. Both men are facing a maximum of life in prison. Those were your true crime headlines. Up next, the story of the weepy-voiced killer. But first, a quick break. Welcome back to Murder Minute. Today, the story of the weepy-voiced killer. In 1981, the year Kimberly Compton graduated from high school, Betty Davis' eyes and endless love topped the radio charts. Big hair and bigger bangs were becoming all the rage, along with high-waisted jeans and leg warmers. 
MTV launched that year, along with IBM's first personal computer. But Kimberly barely had a chance to enjoy any of that. She grew up in Pepin, Wisconsin, a small town on the shores of Lake Pepin, near the birthplace of children's book author Laura Ingalls Wilder, where residents spend time farming, fishing, snowmobiling, and boating. Quaint and peaceful, yes, but it wasn't enough for young Kimberly. By June of 1981, the 18-year-old had graduated from high school and set her sights on a degree in sociology, according to her Aunt Sherry. In an episode of the docuseries Murder Calls that aired in January of 2017, she described Kimberly as soft-hearted and kind, which shows in her class photos. She had warm eyes, thick brown hair, swooping bangs that covered much of her forehead and a gentle smile. She seemed eager to come into her own as a young woman and pursue studies and a career she loved. Taking the leap to head to the Twin Cities, St. Paul and Minneapolis, known as the cities to small-town locals. Undoubtedly, moving from a town with a population of around 800 to St. Paul, where over 300,000 people live, indicates she was also pretty brave. A friend watched Kimberly board a bus headed to St. Paul, and Kimberly was never again seen by friends or loved ones. On June 3rd, just weeks after Kimberly's high school graduation, several teenage boys were walking through a wooded, residential area between a highway and the banks of the Mississippi River, a place where serious crimes are virtually unheard of, when they spotted Kimberly's bloody body and called the police. After the crime, an anonymous, seemingly male caller through sobs confessed to murdering a young woman, calling himself sick and unable to stop himself. Don't talk, just listen. I'm sorry what I did to Compton. I couldn't help it. Don't know why I had to stab her. I am so upset about it. I keep getting drunk every day and I can't believe it. It's like a big dream. I can't think of being locked up. If I get locked up, I'll kill myself. I'll try not to kill anyone else, he added. I'm so upset about it. He called again two days later, saying he was sorry and would turn himself in. Sadly, that never happened. He quickly became known as the weepy-voiced killer because his high-pitched voice sounded so desperate. This wasn't the first time the police had heard from this man. Just months before, 20-year-old college student Karen Potak was attacked with a tire iron and left for dead after an evening with friends at a nightclub on New Year's Eve. Later that same night, the attacker phoned the police and in that same distraught voice directed them to her location, the Minneapolis Star Tribune reported, saying, quote, there is a girl hurt there. Karen survived but suffered severe injuries, including trauma to her brain. She had no memory of the attack or even encountering the guy. He left behind no physical evidence that could help the police, and no witnesses came forward. When Kimberly's body was discovered near the Mississippi, it was clear that this man's violence was escalating. She'd been stabbed with an ice pick 61 times, mostly in the chest, and strangled with a shoelace. At the scene, investigators found a medical ID displaying her name, Kimberly Compton, 
Her 20-year-old cousin Earl took on the excruciating task of identifying her. Can you even imagine? Police were able to track down the payphone the caller used to confess to Kimberly's murder at a local bar, from which they took fingerprints for analysis. But without today's DNA technology, any physical evidence or witness reports, they had little else to go on. And for a brief time, the case went cold. The following year, on July 21, 1982, the weepy-voiced killer struck again. That morning, 33-year-old Kathleen Greening had planned to leave for Mackinac Island, a patch of land in Lake Huron, full of wooded hiking trails and a huge limestone arch formation, to vacation with her best friend Carol. Carol arrived at Kathleen's home and knocked. When no one answered, she let herself in and wandered through, calling her friend's name, until coming upon a horrific scene in the bathroom. Kathleen was in her bathtub, naked, she had drowned. Investigators first ruled her death accidental, though some people suspected that her estranged husband played a role. Years later, her death would be linked to the weepy voice killer. But first, he went on to kill Barbara Simons, a 40-year-old nurse in Minneapolis. After meeting him at a bar, he offered her a ride. As a nurse, she probably had a busy day ahead and was likely tired. Sadly, she never made it to mourning. An autopsy revealed more than 100 stab wounds in Barbara's body. If there'd been any doubt before this point, the police officially had a serial killer on their hands. His next and final victim, 21-year-old sex worker Denise Williams, survived and helped lead investigators to his capture. He'd picked Denise up while driving through an urban area of Minneapolis on August 21st, 1982, offering her, quote, $100 to have some fun with him. Throughout the drive, she later testified, he talked about his sexual fantasies and gave her the creeps. When he attacked her with a screwdriver, she fought back, hitting him on the head with a glass soda bottle, wounding his face and head and causing extensive bleeding. A nearby man, Douglas Panning, heard screaming and approached. Observing what the man was doing to Denise, he leapt at the attacker, wrestling with him until Denise fled. Later at the hospital, she was determined to have 15 puncture wounds, according to court records, to her lower chest, upper abdomen, the right side of her head, one lung, and her liver. The attacker got free too, but now wounded, he called for medical care. He went home and called for an ambulance, telling the dispatcher he had, quote, got beat up. That phone call, paired with the Good Samaritan's ability to help identify him and Denise's bravery and fighting back and screaming, allowed police to confirm the identity of the weepy-voiced killer. His name was Paul Michael Stefani. He'd grown up in a large, religious family in Austin, Minnesota, and had a history of aggravated assault. At the time of the murders, he worked as a janitor and had one daughter. Stefani was arrested and later convicted of murdering Barbara Simons. Years later, in 1997 from prison, he reached out to the police and confessed to the attack of Karen Potak and the murders of Kathleen Greening and Kimberly Compton. During the trial for Barbara Simon's murder, 
Stefani's sister, ex-wife, and a woman who had lived with him for a time testified against him, stating that they believed he was the high-pitched, hysterical caller and capable of murder. He was found guilty of both murder and attempted murder and sentenced to 40 years in prison. He never completed his sentence, though. He died of cancer behind bars at age 54, almost exactly seven years from the day he killed Kimberly Compton, the young woman with plans to study sociology in the cities. Was Stefani as remorseful as he made himself out to be? It's a myth that most serial killers want to be caught, according to Dr. Catherine Ramsland, a professor of forensic psychology at DeSales University. And some serial killers likely do experience some amount of remorse. It's just that the quote, exquisite feelings of power are difficult to surrender. Remorseful or not, Stefani robbed Karen Potak, Barbara Simons, and Kimberly Compton of their lives and their futures and caused their loved ones unfathomable pain. Did Stefani, the weepy-voiced killer, truly want to be stopped as he claimed to police? Could he have been stopped sooner? What drove him to kill three innocent people and brutally attack, nearly killing at least two more? We may never know. A memorial site for Kimberly Compton shows an image of a gravestone that reads, No farewell words were spoken. No time to say goodbye. You were gone before we knew it. And God only knows why. This has been Murder Minute. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute. And now, for 24-hour early access ad-free and bonus episodes, check out Murder Minute on Himalaya.